0: you're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, How Conflict Began, Philip Edwards will describe that we have been born into a war zone, a problem that dates back before Adam's race. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome this evening to uh,
1: the first in a a series on uh, spiritual warfare or uh, spiritual conflict really. Uh, We're going to be examining at why uh, there's so much conflict in the world and uh, Uh, just God will show us how perhaps to handle it, how to deal with it, because we find ourselves in the midst of it. Let's just pray then, before we start. Heavenly Father, we just thank you because you want to protect us and guard us, but also you're raising us up to take a stand against the enemy, to take the battle, as it were, to him. And we pray, Lord, that you will reveal truth into our hearts this evening, And, uh, Lord, you will equip us as good soldiers of Christ. Lord, just anoint me, I pray. Uh, Anoint the ears that hear this, Lord, whether online or uh, in the room this evening, Lord, that we might be more equipped for the battle that you've called us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Well, spiritual conflict. um, And it's very real, isn't it, around us. We're seeing it on our television television all the time with what's happening uh, you know, in, in Eastern Europe. And uh, yeah, this conflict is slightly different in that it's uh, spiritual and how we're involved in the battle. And yet what we see happening around the world uh, has a lot to do with uh, what's happening uh, in the nations and how the enemy is, is fighting against the church, really, and fighting against us and seeking to, uh, to destroy God's creation, both in ourselves and in the world. Life seems to be full of conflict, full of struggles, uh, full of war. There's always been war. And in God's word, it says there will always be war. There will be wars and rumors of wars until Jesus comes. So this world won't end in peace. It'll end with war and it'll continue, I believe, right up to the end. We see conflict and struggle in every sphere of our life. We see it in the home, we see it in the workplace, we see it in our churches, in the nation, and like I was saying, we see it in the world today. We sort of accept it now as normal. Isn't that strange? God made a world that was founded on love and peace, and yet we find that conflict and war and struggling is quite normal to us. Maybe the Bible can explain why it is like this. When we look at the New Testament, we see that uh, Christians will encounter warfare. They will encounter conflict continually in their life day after day. Sometimes there's a little rest from it all, but then it flares up again. Uh, Sometimes it's prolonged and sometimes it's short. It's said of even of Jesus, it said that Satan left him for a season, Uh, he will be back. And that's the same in our life. Sometimes we find ourselves in the midst of a conflict, everything goes peaceful, and then something flares up again in some sphere of our life. It seems as well that the spiritual battle that's going on, it spills out into the physical, natural, and we're warned not to uh, engage, as it were, in a struggle with flesh and blood, but engage in the battle with the spiritual. See what's going on behind, what is causing the, the upset in our families, in our homes, in the place where we work. Is there a spiritual force at work here? Usually there is. It seems that the two go hand in glove. When there's a problem you're facing in the natural, there are spiritual forces at work here and cause as soldiers of Christ. The attack is against us. Is to destroy our testimony or to pull us down or to call us to feel defeated, as it were. So conflict is part of the Christian life. Let me read you this verse from 2 Corinthians ten three to 5. For though we live in the world, it says, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, so it's assumed you're going to fight. Uh, the right ear says, that these are the weapons you're going to use. So he doesn't think for one minute we're never going to be involved in a conflict. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. He says, on the contrary, they have divine powers to demolish strongholds to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and to take captive every thought and to make it obedient to Christ. The language there is obvious, isn't it? It talks about war and weapons and fighting and demolishing and strongholds and taking captive. Uh, It's just, here we are. Paul sees it very clearly, and we need to see it very clearly as well. The scripture doesn't put us on the defensive. Scripture like this puts us on the offensive. These are the weapons you have, he's saying. You have to take your stand and you have to come forward and challenge the enemy. So often Christians just sit back and wait till the enemy comes, and then they offer some uh reaction against him the encouragement here is to go for the enemy he says we wage war he says the weapons that we fight with we demolish we take captive see there's the sense of being offensive and not defensive in this war and where is the battle again there's a clue in the, this the, these couple of verses here it talks about arguments and pretensions and knowledge and thought. That's all up here, isn't it? That's what goes on here. Arguments and knowledge and thought. And so what the enemy seeks to do through deception and and other forms, he comes to take strongholds and and make us so we can't resist him, we can't fight back. He deceives us, he, he intimidates us, uses fear extensively, to bind us up so we don't take the offensive to him. As I say, we shouldn't be waiting for his attack. We should take the attack to him. The purpose of this story is, or series of talks really is to encourage all who hear uh, and understand what we're talking about to come to a point where you take the offensive to him. Sometimes we look around and the church seems so weak in the world, so it's, it's losing the battle, as it were. It's m- diminishing numbers and Christians not being strong. And it's perhaps we've been lulled into a, a, a false security, really, that it's, it's not really a spiritual battle and people aren't really interested. The Word of God doesn't say that. We have to come out onto the offensive Paul writes to Timothy, he refers to him as a soldier, remember, 1 Timothy 1.18, he says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that, you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight. He has no doubt in his mind, this young, uh, young man, Timothy, who he was established as a pastor in uh, a number of churches, and he says, listen, You need to be strong and fight the good fight. You need to have courage. You need to have efficiency in the fighting, and you need to be able to uh, size up your target and and strike at it. You know, Paul says about running the race to win, and he also talks about fighting and making every punch land where it's supposed to. Don't waste your enemy flailing your arms around so you you don't bring a blow against the enemy. In the authorized version, it doesn't use, it doesn't say fight the good fight. It says war a good warfare. I like that. It's a lovely expression. It's like we're called to warfare. Make sure you have a good war if you're going to, you know, of course, that means you're going to win if you have a good war. And again to Timothy, he says this in 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving of, as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. We see this language all the way through now. You were thinking, well, was, was Paul a, a sort of a military man? We would expect military people to talk in this, this term. It would be the metaphors they would use. But he wasn't, was he? He wasn't a military man at all. He was a religious scholar. And so you can say, well, if he's talking like this, it's more than just, you know, a metaphor. There's truth, there's reality in this whole thing of being called to a battle, to a spiritual conflict. In that last uh, uh, quotation I gave you there, he makes certain assumptions here. He says, as a minister of the gospel, Timothy, uh, sorry, as a minister of the gospel, Timothy is a soldier, He's a soldier. You know, we used to sing that hymn, didn't we? Stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. We don't sing hymns like that anymore. Uh, We've moved on to uh, another genre of singing, but yeah, the idea that he is a soldier. A soldier cannot live, he says, uh, a civilian life. You can't do it anymore. Once you enlist, you're a soldier. You've changed your identity, who you are, the way you think about life and once we come into the kingdom, it's not, oh, it's so lovely now, we can just relax and be at rest and we're Christians and we're going to heaven one day and everything's going to be wonderful. That's not true. You've enlisted in an army. And so Christians are really surprised that they find themselves in the middle of a battle. And I want to say, well, just read the Bible. It's there on every page. We've been enlisting and we've been called to battle, called to fight. The Christian life involves warfare, he says to Timothy. War, a good warfare. And of course, we all know that verse in Ephesians 6 and 12. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We struggle. The metaphor here is taken from the Olympic Games. Again, if you go back into the authorised, it doesn't say, uh, for we struggle, it says, uh, for we wrestle. We wrestle against these things. Interesting when you think about wrestling. Wrestling is a sport where you're in close contact with the, the opposition the whole time. It's all about outwitting and they don't stand like in boxing a distance away from another and they, they step back all the time. Wrestling is not like that. Wrestling is you get in there and you grapple and you hold and hold and fight and hold until you pin the person down. That's what Satan's doing, you see. He's pinning us down. He's, he's trying to make us ineffective Uh, I brought out a book some years ago now about deliverance. It was a manual. And I had a friend who wrote a foreword to it. And this is uh, what he wrote in his foreword. For many years, Christians have read, we wrestle not, and stop reading right there. It's true, isn't it? It's like, come on now. We've been called to a battle. We've been called to wrestle with the enemy. We have to pin him down. We can't step back. We have to win The victory, this stuff is real. So wrestling then involves the total person. Combat, close combat all the time. You can't drop your concentration for a minute. You have to keep focused on the enemy. If not, he defeats you. How did he sneak up on uh, Eve in the garden and just do that? How could he do that? She wasn't alive to the fact. Had God not warned them that the enemy is close at hand? I'm sure he did. He said they were to subdue the earth. He would have told them of the problems. And yet Satan came in and deceived. And this is what he wants to do with us. He wants to deceive us and trick us and rob from us and cause us to be ineffective in the work that God has called us to this verse tells us whatever struggle we're engaged in we're engaged in a struggle against spiritual forces see it for what it is when your neighbor throws their rubbish over your fence and you give them a mouthful that's not the way to deal with it you put the rubbish up and put it in your bin and you see it for what it is do you expect that people aren't going to be uh, stirred up, as it were, to attack Christians, to try and destroy your testimony, to make you ineffective in the kingdom. Of course, once you've blurted it out or said something or done something, your testimony is quite damaged, isn't it? So we have to be wise. We have to see what Satan is up to. And we have to outsmart him. Do not be distracted by fighting in the natural Uh, being in church ministry for over 40 years. You can imagine I've seen a few battles in churches over the years. I've seen a few splits and divisions, and I'm not just talking about the leadership meetings, in the very churches themselves, where people take side and become angry and say all sorts of terrible things, and then the whole thing is split and it's rift, and and Satan just walks down the street laughing his head off because we've destroyed ourselves, not seeing where the the problem has really come from God himself in scripture is presented to us as a military commander of all things it says in exodus 15 and 3 the lord is a warrior the lord is his name This part of the song of Moses and Miriam after they had crossed uh, the the Red Sea and God had come and destroyed uh, Pharaoh's army. So this wasn't a metaphor where I was talking about Paul. Paul was using a metaphor. This writer here isn't using a metaphor. Uh, When they were singing that song, Moses and Miriam, and saying, the Lord is a warrior, they actually meant that he was. He came to destroy the enemy. Joshua in 5 and 13 and 15, it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for the enemy? Neither, he replied, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. Who was this one who came to Joshua? Um, we're led to believe it couldn't have been an angel because an angel wouldn't have allowed someone to go face down on the floor and revere him. But he was a messenger. Some say it was a, a theophany. It was one of those appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. S- some people believe in these and, and some people don't, but it was he was special. He wasn't an angel. And he calls himself um, the Commander Of the Lord's armies, he said. I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. And of course, he says, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. That's the same thing that God said to Moses. Remember all those years previously when he stood before him, he said, you're standing on holy ground. So I have every reason to believe this was a a theophany. It was Jesus appearing and uh, saying, I've come. I've come to lead the battle. That's what we want Jesus to do, isn't it? Come and lead us. Lead us against the enemy. Lead us against the foe. Lead our churches. Come and be the commander, as it were, so we can take the battle to the enemy. The third I've got here is in Psalm 24 and verse 8. Who is the King of glory? It says, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. In the North African campaign, um, El Alamein in North Africa, Montgomery was sent there and there was a battle that was taking place. And before he took his soldiers into war, he read them this verse of scripture. That's encouraging, isn't it? And it was, he, he got his men together and he addressed the troops and said, let us ask the Lord Almighty in battle to give us the victory. 100 times God is called the Lord of Hosts, which means the Lord of Armies. What have you been praying for Ukraine? What have you been praying for them? I know what I've been praying. I want victory, victory for Ukrainians. Now, when you look at it in the natural, that's impossible. But see, we need to see we're involved in a spiritual conflict here. We're, we're, it's the Lord of Hosts that can come to defend the righteous. The Lord of hosts, we should be calling upon him, the commander of the armies, to come and to lead. Let's pray now, shall we? Let's take a moment. I'll lead you in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we see terrible things happening in Ukraine to just innocent people who, They did nothing to start a war it's so unrighteous and we see this uh, uh, this awful man uh, leading his soldiers to destroy innocent people and father we're going to pray nothing less than we ask you to come and intervene on their behalf be the captain of the army lord send your angels we pray to confuse the enemy, to destroy the enemy. You did it many times in the Old Testament in many different ways. And Lord, whether you blind them or cause them to lose heart or drive them back, Father, we're looking to you as believers that believe that you're the Lord of hosts. We call upon you to move upon this situation and deliver that country from the oppressor. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Amen. In Isaiah 13 and four, we read this, listen, a noise on the mountains, like that of a great multitude, listen, an uproar amongst the kingdoms, like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war, That's how he destroys the Babylons, doesn't he? He brings in another great army to just shift them out of the way. What's the background to all this conflict and war then? What's it all about? What have we got to understand? Why are there these opposing forces? The root cause of all unrest and conflict... summed up in one word it's rebellion that's what it is it's rebellion it's the refusal to submit to the righteous government of god rebellion is at the heart of it we say satan right at the beginning don't we rebelling in that exalted position that he has rebelling against god rebellion is the root of all conflict. The world is full of rebels. And rebels can never be at peace, ever. They think if they have this victory, it will bring them peace, but it won't. They're rebels, they won't submit. Unfortunately, the church is full of members who've never submitted completely to the Lord. They're glad to have their salvation. They're pleased to be saved. They're glad to receive the grace of God, but they haven't submitted their lives, as it were, wholly to God. And so within the church itself, we find rebels, unsubmitted people. If we just think about the Lord's Prayer for a little while, that's all about submission Matthew 9 uh, 6 9 and 10 it says this this then is how you should pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we pray our father we're in this together We shouldn't be fighting against one another. We have a common enemy, but it causes us to be fractured and to argue amongst ourselves and be divided and split and and, and build our own empires. And no, our father, it's together. We're members together of one body. And we know if a house is united, the enemy cannot defeat it. But the house, if it's divided, will always fall so the enemy's job is to split the house divide the house divide marriages divide families divide churches and when he brings division he's one he's one every time our father hallowed be your name we reverence you god You're our commander. We honour you. We want to hear what you're saying. We want to hear your commands. We want your direction. We want you to speak to us as we move forward together as one. We pray, your kingdom come. What part am I to play in this battle? What have you called me to? What part must I play? Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, first your will must take place in my heart. Once it's established in my heart, then I will be able to see your kingdom come into the world. See if the kingdom of God is not in our hearts, it will never be in the world. He first establishes his kingdom in our heart, and from this position, we extend his kingdom into the world. Everywhere we go, we take the kingdom life of Jesus with us. We must not obstruct what he's doing in establishing and building his kingdom. See, it begins with each one of us. I have to submit without reservation to the will of god then i will not be the cause of conflict Hmm. i look back over the years i've been a christian you know i'm just amazed how long it takes well how long it's taken me i should say i can't speak about how long it's taken me to work some stuff out but it does take time we, we don't necessarily understand by reading. Uh, this book is a wonderful book, but it's this and the experiences that we go through teach us. I would love just to read it all day, not go anywhere and somehow fill myself up and be like God. But that never works. We have to experience life. Life experience the conflict, experience the difficulty, and then when we we apply God's word to our lives and to the situation, we walk in triumph. Peace will only come by total submission to God. (laughs) Whenever you feel conflict rising up within your heart, Whenever you're sitting there making judgments of someone, you see, you're you're causing the trouble. That's a rebel's heart. You've got to talk to yourself. You say, no, I'm submitting to my God. I'm not going to be the cause of conflict in this situation. I'm going to speak a quiet, peaceable word rather than stir things up for the sake of it. Sometimes we have to speak out. Unfortunately, we have to speak the truth in in many situations, but not to cause conflict, but that we might bring peace into the whole situation. Isaiah said this in 57, 19 to 21. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The rebel, always causing strife and division and problems. Total submission to God then, it brings deep, settled peace within our heart. And it's from here where the peace reigns that we bring the peace of the kingdom wherever we go. We make sure that conflict and strife in the areas where we're working, it doesn't take off. We speak peace into that situation. Like I said at the beginning, I don't think we'll ever see peace in our world. We won't see that. I don't think scripture promises that. As long as man is rebellious against God, there will be wars. There will always be wars. How and when did rebellion begin? We want to discover how it all started. In the study that follows, I'm going to have to present to you theories. Um, I'll explain why they're theories. And you must buy into a theory here. So I can't tell you what to believe. I can tell you what I believe. But you have to work some stuff out yourself because we're gonna deal with it. We know what happened from Adam to Jesus returning a period of maybe six or 7,000 years. That's what the Bible talks about. But this rebellion, this conflict came before Adam. And so when we look at what happened before Adam, it's theoretical, you understand. It's like, what do we know about when Jesus comes? We know he comes. Can you tell me what happens after Jesus comes? No, you say, well, I can't really. I just know it's heaven, and I have my theories about heaven. And I'm not arguing with your theories, because we can glean things from Scripture that give us little insights in what happened before Adam and what happens when Jesus returns. And so, as we read, we build our theories. So I'm gonna be presenting to you theories, okay? It doesn't mean they're true, it doesn't mean they're not true, but from it, we can see the picture of possibly what's happening. To do this, there'll be two basic facts we have to take on board. As I said, the Bible primarily deals with Adam's race. This book is about Adam's race. And we're gonna be looking at what happened before Adam's race. And I believe as we examine this together, uh, there's an undetermined period of time in history of universe before Adam even came. What happened? What happened before Adam came? This is what we're going to be examining and looking at and taking apart. You could say, Philip, and I'm not building doctrine, they're theories. Uh, You can't build doctrine on what the Bible doesn't say. Some people are good at this. They say the Bible doesn't say that, so it means this. (laughs) No, I can't do that. You can only build doctrine on what it says, but I'm not building doctrine. I'm building a theory, a hypothesis, to put before you, and then you must work that one out yourself. Jesus came to save Adam's race. Jesus called himself many times the Son of Man, which means the Son of Adam. He came to save Adam's race. What happened before, we'll have a little glimpse at. Uh, But that will take us on to our study after the break. So we'll have a little break here and uh, come back and study that. Thank you. In this lesson, we're going to have a look at that pre-Adamic period, of which I think there's sufficient in Scripture to to come to some sort of a conclusion uh, about what was going on there. And uh, yeah, so let's go for that. Um as I said before the break, we know quite well what happens uh, from the creation of Adam to the second coming of Jesus, which will, uh, it's at least 6,000 years, it might be 7,000 years, we don't know when he's going to come back again. And then either side of that, we don't really know what happens, we just know for this particular period of time. Man is... He's egocentric, isn't he? He thinks he's the centre of the universe. And so he, he thinks about everything around him as though he is the central part of everything. Of course, he's not. Were there other people created before Adam? What was God doing throughout all eternity? Because god has always existed if we think about time it goes back for billions and billions and well it goes back forever what was he doing there well we say nothing why because man is is the center of everything it's all about us it's not actually it's about god so we'd be arrogant to say oh this is the only world this is this is what it's really all about that's I have to think we have to be very careful. It's in Genesis one and one it says this, and I'm sure you all know it well. In the beginning, God, well it says God's actually, it's plural. God's created the heavens, that's definitely plural, it's in our Bible, and he created the earth. In the beginning, the beginning of what? Ever asked yourself the question? In the beginning of what? That God did this? Well, the truth is, eternity is a mystery to us, isn't it? We don't know, we're lost already, we're confused, we haven't got a clue. We, when he says in the beginning, we think in the beginning of man or in the beginning of the world. Well, that wasn't the beginning. God has always been. God existed before anything else existed. God spoke everything that exists into being. I want to introduce something to you this evening. You might have heard of it, read about it. You might know it, it all might be new to you. The thing that's called the gap theory, the idea that between uh, Genesis 1 and verse 1 and Genesis 1 and verse 2, there's a great gap. It could be of billions of years. We don't know. It's a theory. Don't be upset with the word theory, because as I said before, if we go beyond, before Adam, we get into that realm of theory, and if we go the other way into the next world, we get into the realm of theory. I've got some ideas of what the next world will be like, but it's only a theory, it's only what I think. Uh, This has a bit more strength to it, strength of argument to it. It will substantiate, I believe, from Scripture, um, the foundation of rebellion and sin in the world. And it all happened to come about. What I've done, I've chosen to uh, put down uh, what this gap theory is and read it to you rather than me explain it because sometimes it's just a lot clearer. Let me read this to you then. The gap theory or the ruin and recreation or reconstruction theory, it's called as well. So the world was made and it was destroyed, as it were, and remade again so he made it in genesis 1 something happened between genesis 1 and genesis 2 where the world was destroyed and in genesis 2 he starts again creating the world so in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth stop that was billions of years ago and then now the earth was formless and empty. That's billions of years later after that first, and then we move on. It'll make more sense, I hope, as I read this and as I explain it. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 states, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The gap theory is the view that God created a fully functional earth with all animals, including the dinosaurs and other creatures we know from the fossils record. Then something happened to destroy the earth completely, most likely the fall of Satan to earth, so that the planet became without form and void. At this point, God started all over again recreating the earth in its paradise form as further described in Genesis. Genesis 1.1 is seen as a summary of the complete chapter 1 in the Hebrew storytelling form. What it means by that is sometimes when you buy a newspaper, you can read the first paragraph and that tells you what the whole thing's about. And you can just read that and then move on to the next uh, heading if you want to. But then after it's done that, it then goes into great detail. That's how the Hebrew people wrote. So they're saying they're just giving you the headline on verse 1. And then when it goes from verse 2, it starts to break down the story and then explain it to you. Then verse two begins to, a detailed breakdown of the step-by-step process that verse one summarizes. However, the statement that the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep, as Genesis 1-2, can be puzzling. The idea that God created a useless and shapeless earth is an uncomfortable position to hold. Remember that God does everything perfectly. Why would he build something that was formless and empty and had no shape? This is the whole uh, argument that's put forward. Those who believe in the gap theory describe the original creation of God perfect in every way. Then between verses one and two, Satan rebelled in heaven and was cast out. Satan's sin ruined the original creation That is, his rebellion brought about its destruction and the earth was reduced to its formless and empty state, ready for the reconstruction. The length of time involved, the size of the gap is not specified, but could have lasted millions of years. Of course, Satan must have fallen before Adam did, otherwise there would have been no temptation in the garden. So there'll be little things that just strengthen and uh, the argument as, or the, the, the theory as, as, as we go along, as it were. Now, I've got another theory. It's not just the gap theory and the fact that Satan fell and brought destruction on the earth, but I believe there was a race of people that lived on the earth when he did fall, and we call this the pre-Adamic race. Now, whether there were pre-Adamic, pre-Adamic, pre-Adamic races, I don't know. But it's a theory. and So I'm presenting this theory to you this evening. Okay. I want to now draw your attention to a dialogue that happened between Job. Uh, we know that Job is the most ancient book in the Bible. Between Job and God himself. It's in Job 38, and verses 4 to 7. Where were you? He's speaking to Job. Uh, Job has been somewhat um, antagonistic, as it were, with God, arguing with God, suggesting that God can't run the universe too well. So he picks him up on this, and he says this. I'll read the verse to you, and then we'll analyse the verse. He says, "Where, where, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked out the dimensions? Surely you know, who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? And who laid its cornerstone? He says, while the morning stars sang the angels, morning stars, while the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouting for joy. So that's God describing how he creates the world. It doesn't line up too well with Genesis 1-2, does it? Where he he created some sort of chaotic mess and brought order to it. That doesn't follow through when he's talking to Job. He seems to be structuring and building the thing well as you would imagine God would. He wouldn't have started with... There wouldn't have been any chaos if there was nothing God spoke the world into being, he wouldn't have spoken chaos into being, he would have spoken order into being, because God is a God of order. So like I said, Job was complaining to God about, you're not running the universe too well, so God says, I'm going to ask you one or two questions, so you better have some answers for me. Where were you, he said, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Well, the answer's clear, I wasn't there. Who marked out the dimensions, he says? I don't know. Who stretched out the measuring line across it? Job says, well, I didn't. What are the footings of the earth embedded into? Do you know? He says, I have no idea. And who laid the earth's cornerstones? Can you tell me, Job? No reply. When God created the earth, it seems perfectly, he created it, he spoke it into being, he was making it with his Son and the Spirit, the angels were busy rejoicing. God had created, you see, the heavens a long time before he ever created the earth. Maybe thousands, millions, billions of years, we don't know, but he created the heavens. He didn't create one heaven, he created heavens. It says this in Nehemiah, You alone, are Lord, you made the heavens, even the highest heavens. Well, that gives us three to start with. And all the starry hosts, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, you give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven, they worship you. God made the heavens a long time, I believe, after he made the earth. The angels watched him make the earth. They rejoiced over what it was doing. They thought it was wonderful. It was a glorious thing that he was doing. I believe the earth was created after the whole of the universe was spoken to being. It was the final bit, almost like... The pinnacle of his creation, something perfect for humans to live in. In the beginning, God then created the heavens and its inhabitants. Then he made the earth and its inhabitants. There was an an unmeasurable gap between the two. We've got to look at what happened from when he made the heavens and when he made the earth, something happened in that gap that brought about chaos in the earth. Because I can't believe that God could have created it in chaos. We'll look at all the verses that would substantiate this point. It could be thousands or millions of years, an unmeasurable period of time what happened in that time that's what we want to look at in genesis 1 2 it says now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering hovering sorry over the waters where else do we get this picture this imagery of a bird hovering over waters We get it from Noah, don't we? Remember? God had judged the earth. He had flooded the earth. And then Noah sends a bird out and the bird hovers above the waters. It was a picture of God's judgment of the earth with the bird hovering over the waters. This is what we get in Genesis 1 and 2. It's as though the Spirit like the dove hovering over the waters of the earth which had been flooded the first time as it were. A picture, imagery. As I said, the, the description of creation given in verse 2 of Genesis is nothing like the description that we got from Job. There was order and structure, and it was beautiful. And the angels rejoiced, whereas Genesis 1 and 2, it's a mess, it's chaos. He's laying a foundation, he's marking out the dimensions like a brilliant architect. He knows all the the scientific understanding of what's necessary, everything to a fine detail as he creates the earth. He lays its cornerstones, and all the time the angels are singing and rejoicing in what God is doing. It's a description of the earth. It's the state in which it fell as a result of things that happened between verse 1 and verse 2. It was formless and empty and darkness covered it. Another interesting thing here, in verse two, it says, now the earth was formless and empty. If you look at your Bibles, it's in most Bibles that I've looked at, where it says, now the earth was formless, it says at the base of my uh, page here, it became formless and empty. So it depends on what the translators choose to put in there. It changes the whole meaning, doesn't it? To say it was or it became is a different thing. So the earth became formless and empty. He created it perfect and something happened and it became a place where God had judged it. Formless, empty, darkness, chaos,
0: You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please join us next week for the second lesson in the Spiritual Conflict module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by heading over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. And don't forget, you can also follow us on social media at Ariseministryuk. A Rise Ministry, a living legacy.